But what we know, just as true today as it was true back then, there are people in the church that are not saved. Perhaps they're here because their parents, um, their parents were Christians and they just got brought up and now they're 20, 30, 40, or 50 and they've just been in the church all of their life and they trust more in their inheritance, you meaning from their parents, the inheritance of their parents' salvation than in the true salvation of Jesus Christ. And so we ask, how do we know if we're truly saved? And so uh, we ask the question, what are you producing? And we did that because there was an illustration given in verses 7 through 8 that the author said, imagine that there's two lands and both receive water. One, one produces a crop that is good for others and one produces thorns and thistles. The one that produces a crop good for others is going to be blessed by God, those who are truly believers. But the one that produces thorns and thistles will eventually experience judgment. And so we looked and said, what is it that we're producing? And the purpose was so that we would know whether we are saved or not. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to build off of that because the author wants us as a church to have assurance of our salvation. Uh, So that's what we're going to be looking at today, the title, The Full Assurance of Hope. So let me ask you this. Do you have confidence that you're saved? Do you know that you are a believer in Jesus Christ? Do you know that you're supposed to have assurance of your salvation? There's many people in the church, there's many people out of the church, uh, that will say things like, we have no idea if we're saved, or that we don't believe assurance is actual a reality that is possible. In fact, during the medieval ages, which is kind of like 4th, 5th century, all the way to like the 13th, 14th century, um, there was a great debate, and many, many people said that um, assurance of salvation was not obtainable. So, for example, Pope Gregory the Great in the 6th century, he said, assurance is impossible and un." desirable. Now think about that. Undesirable. That we shouldn't even want to have assurance. Thomas Aquinas, kind of at the the far spectrum at the medieval ages in the 13th century, he said, assurance may be possible for a few, but only by a special means of grace, meaning through some special revelation, maybe a few people will have it, but certainly most will not have assurance of salvation. Um, If many of you are familiar with uh, the Council of Trent in the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church said this, no one can know with a certainty of faith that he has obtained the grace of God. That is the position of the Roman Catholic Church. That is still the position of the Roman Catholic Church, that you cannot have assurance or certainty of salvation. In fact, Cardinal, and I butcher the name, Bellarmine said this, the principal heresy of Protestants, that would be us, Protestants, is that saints may obtain a certain assurance of their gracious pardoned state before God. They're equating assurance to heresy. I mean, that is ridiculous. Uh, because as, as, as you walk through the New Testament especially, 
And we did that. Again, I'll, I'll refer to last week's sermon. We looked at a lot of texts that are all given for the purpose of assurance of our salvation. But let me just give you a few out of the book of Hebrews. Listen to how Hebrews, the author, talks about the church and the confidence or assurance we're supposed to have. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's, he's calling us to realize that we have a heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. Um, in Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How do we draw near to the throne of grace? With confidence. Hebrews 10.14, listen to this. For by a single offering, he, this is Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Do you see it? I mean, there's confidence, confidence, confidence. You don't have confidence if there's no confidence. So to say that it's heretical to have confidence, that would in itself be heretical to take that position, which would be the Roman Catholic Church on that issue for sure. So today we are looking at the assurance of salvation. And the main point this morning is that God has saved us that we would have assurance of our salvation and therefore keep running the race of faith. So I, my hope, is if you're a Christian today, that your heart would swell with joy as we look at this text. We look at why we have um, assurance and how it is that we can grow in our assurance. And if you're not a believer and you're here and you're just examining Christianity and you're looking at it, or maybe you're here and you don't really want to be here, I want to challenge you to think, what is it that you are trusting in? What does it promise? What does it guarantee? And I, I, I pray that you'll see today that it does not compare to the promise that we have in Jesus Christ. Nothing compares to the assurance we have in the gospel of Jesus. And so with that, I want to invite you to stand. We stand when we read God's word. And so we're going to read uh, verses 9 through 12 this morning. In fact, let's just back up a little bit. We're going to start in verse 3, uh, in verse 4. So we're going to read last week's text and then move right into this week's text to get the whole flow. He says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And here's the illustration. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, 
so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, Father, I just pray right now that your spirit would work through your word and through the preaching of your word. And I pray that those who are believers here today, that we have a great confidence in our salvation, that we would have great confidence in our salvation because you have saved us by grace and you are transforming us by the work of your spirit in us. And Lord, I pray that we would have a better understanding of just the Christian life today. And I pray that we would be spurred on in our Christian faith, that we would run all the more zealously, all the more diligently, that our assurance would grow more and more because of how you are working in us. Father, be greatly glorified this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, this was, a, this was a hard text to work through because of the way it, it flows. Um, so your outline is, is slightly different than the outline we're going to follow. Um, I'll tell you when it changes. Uh, but for the first half, we're going to be on the same page. Then the second half, your outline is going to change a little bit. Um, sorry. First thing I want you to see. Assurance is part of salvation. In verses 4 through 6, which we just read, the author warned the church about apostasy. He's challenged them all to examine what kind of fruit are you producing? What kind of life are you living? Are you living a life that produces fruit for the kingdom of God? Does your life benefit other believers? And specifically today, we're going to be looking at our relationship with the church. Now that he has warned the church... He now wants to give them a word of encouragement. And so in verse 9, he says, though we speak in this way. So he's saying, though I give you this really hard warning, a warning about apostasy. He then says, um, though we speak in this way, yet in your case. So he's saying, hold on here. Remember that warning I told you, but beloved, only time he uses the word beloved here in Hebrews. He's calling beloved. We feel sure of better things. What are these better things? Things that belong to salvation. So the author has given a, a hard warning to the church. In fact, he's given hard warnings to the church throughout it. If you remember in chapter two, he warned them about spiritual drift. In chapter three, he warned them about having a hard heart. And in chapter uh, five, six, he warned them about this apostasy. Yet he says, I, I, I believe that you're saved. I believe that you are believers in Jesus Christ. I believe that you have truly trusted in Jesus Christ. He has confidence. Why? Because he says he sees things that belong to salvation in the church. Now, throughout the series, we have talked about how Hebrews talks about salvation. And Hebrews does not only talk about salvation as, you know, justification, the fact that we believe in Jesus Christ and we are justified, but he also looks at salvation as the whole Christian life. So not only justification, but sanctification, the process of being made more like Jesus, and one day glorification. He looks at all of that and says, that's salvation. And so we need to remember that. We often like to think of salvation as only Justification, the fact that we're declared righteous, this is what we want everyone to, to pray the prayer, you know? But he's saying, no, no, salvation is also the entire 
Christian life. This is why Paul in Romans 15 will talk about the gospel that has saved you and is saving you. And so there's multiple ways we can look at salvation as we're talking about it. And so he now says, I see things that belong to salvation. He's not talking about justification. He's talking about sanctification. He's saying sanctification, the process of being made more and more like Jesus, is part of salvation. And so as we move into verse 10, he's going to explain what these things are that belong to salvation. And these things that he will mention are to provide assurance of our salvation. So here's the thing we need to know. Assurance is part of salvation. You get it? You see it? Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. We see things that belong to salvation. Therefore, you are to have assurance of your salvation. So assurance is part of salvation. As we see Christ working in us, the transformative work of the Spirit in our life, that provides assurance in our Christian life. And so, first thing we see is assurance is part of salvation. So anyone who says you shouldn't have assurance, or it's only for some Christians, or it's for a a small few, no. It's something that every believer is to experience. It's part of salvation. And so, he's going to give us two reasons for the church's salvation. Number one, a love for God's name is a means of assurance. Look at verse 10. We read, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. Now we need to be careful here. The author is not, okay, so not saying this. He is not saying because you love people in the church and you serve them, therefore you must be saved. He's not saying that. If you're not careful, you're, you're going to think that's what he's saying. There's a lot of nice people in the church that do not know Jesus, okay? Just because you serve people, just because you're nice, that does not mean you're a believer. It does not make you a believer. So we can't ever, he's not, he's not talking about earning our salvation here. Notice the words in or for his name. Whose name? He's talking about God. He's talking about, um, for God is not unjust. He's talking about God the Father. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name. Whose name goes back to God. And so when the Bible speaks of God's name, it refers to his glory. It refers to his majesty. It refers to his supremacy. It refers to that he is the one true God who is worthy of all glory and honor and worship. This is why, remember the first line of the Lord's Prayer? How does it go? Hallowed be, those King James versions, thy name. Holy, <laughs> hallowed be your name, hallowed be, thy is just such a weird word. Hallowed be thy name. But it's a really a petition. It's saying, make your name holy. Make your name glorified. In all of creation, may people know you. May, may creation worship you. So, the church loves one another out of a love for God. Their love for God is what motivates them 
to love the church. Do you see the difference? He's not just saying, oh, because you're loving. He says, no, no. Your love for God is being displayed in your love for others. And their love for God is also the goal in which they love the church. Meaning, it's not just that God's love is what motivates them to love, but they also have the goal that those who are there loving will experience the love of Christ and become more and more like Christ as well. The author is looking at the church and saying you can have assurance of your salvation because it's evident that your love for one another flows out of your love for God. That's why they have assurance. Not just because they're loving, but because their love comes from a love for his name. Now I want to point out something here. The author is specifically focusing on the love for the church. Because Christians, we're to love all people, right? Everyone is to be our neighbor. We're to encourage others. We're to be kind to others. But specifically, here in Hebrews and other parts, we're told that we are to especially love the church. Like in Galatians 6, 9, and 10, it says this. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, believer and unbeliever, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we're to love our neighbors. We're to love our coworkers. We're to do kind things for them. But we're to especially prioritize the church. Why? Because we're brothers and sisters in the family of God. We're held together by the very blood of Christ. I want to ask you, does your love for God move you to love the church? I just want you to think about that. Do you serve and help others in the church so they experience God's kindness and goodness? Do you forgive others and overlook offenses because of the great love which God has loved you? I was, um, as I was working through this, I, I was thinking, man, maybe I should just go through a list of many of the people here at our church and the ways that they serve. Um, I was like, that could be encouraging, but then I was like, oh, I'm not going to mention everyone, and so then there's going to be people who say, oh, you don't mention me, um, so I didn't know whether I should do that or not, but we'll just give it a try, um, um, so I, I'm not going to mention some people's name, because I simply will not remember it, and I did not write anyone's names down, so, um, but I just want to point out, like, Daryl making coffee out there, you know, he's here every single week. He makes coffee to, to just serve the church. He shows up um, on Tuesday mornings, um, on I think Tuesday mornings, on Saturday mornings, and he just picks up all the pine cones, and he blows all the sidewalks. He just continues to take care of the things of the church. He just wants to serve. Um, Rue helps out in our, um, in our youth room. She also helps out just helping keep track of who's here and who's not here so we can be making phone calls. We have amazing junior church workers like Juliet went downstairs. Cliff is, is in here. He serves downstairs also. I think Jeff Reese in the back, he serves down there. His wife Jenny and Minnie serve in, the, in our junior church and in our upstairs uh, with our um, priest school and nursery. Um, we have uh, Christy Gorman and her husband, Chris. Christy serves in a multitude of ways. Chris serves up here, when he, whether he's preaching, whether he's leading music, or in a multitude of other ways. Peggy's like everywhere, um, just helping to encourage. Christina helped start a, um, I'm blanking on it, homeschool group on, on Thursday mornings once a month. Uh, and she has other women who are now just helping 
just run that and lead just as a way of ministering to people. Robert sets up communion every single week. Rachel serves in uh, the office and she's paid, but she's she loves to do it. Every, every week almost, she says, I just love being here and being able to serve the church. Raymond uses his gifts up here. And I tell you, Raymond, Raymond moves when he plays bass. Don't, have you noticed that? Not everyone moves like Raymond. Am I supposed to point that out? Was that good? Cynthia's not here, so she doesn't know. Uh, Lucci's, uh, she'll be up here playing. Paul's on our security team where he just kind of keeps us all safe, although he's in here today, so I don't know how that's working. <laughs> Um, Bill's back there making sure uh, the sound goes well. Um, Alan helps out also there. Martina helps through the treasury, making sure bills are paid. Roy shows up every Tuesday morning to count the offering and to make sure that it gets uh, to wherever it goes. Um, <laughs> Uh, we have countless table group leaders, and there's hospitality and there's service being played out in all of those table groups. That's one reason we, we have every table group have a meal, because it, it requires service, and it requires hospitality, which is a way of serving one another. And we could just go on and on. And I know, I know some of you are going, wait, you didn't say me? Yeah, I know, I didn't, because I can't think of everything, and we do have to keep going through the sermon. Um, there's so many people in this church that serve well. And so when I was just looking at this text and going, people who serve love the church for his name, there's a great many of you. And so it is a pleasure just being a pastor here, being able to look at that and see that. It is a great joy to see the service that takes place. Um, and I pray that we just grow in that more and more. That's one of my prayers on a regular basis for the church is that we'll just love one another. Is that what we see in Hebrews 4? And that we would be zealous to maintain the unity of the saints. That we would love one another because we're called to be light in this world. And one of the primary ways that we are light in this world is by our love for one another. Do you know that? Not only for our love for unbelievers, but particularly our love for the church. The fact that we overlook offenses. The fact that we're, we demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, John 17 talks about the love for the church is one of the primary means in which we testify that the Father has sent the Son to die and to save us. So our love testifies to the very salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, that we are a different people because of the blood of Christ. Isn't that incredible? In fact, let me just read. I want to read a section from 1 John. 1 John is all about assurance. So if you're wrestling with assurance, just read 1 John. He writes, I write this so you would know. And many times it just leads right into the assurance of our salvation. But I want you to pay attention to what he says about love in this passage. It's a little lengthy, but I just want you to track with it. Um, John uses, I think, the word love 46 times in his first letter. So there's a lot he's saying about love in, four cha in five chapters. Here it is, chapter 4, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Do you see why we're loving? Because who abides in us? God. And who is love? And so if he abides in us, what do we do? See? Like, we don't even need to read that. You guys got this. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence. Again, there's that word, confidence for the day of judgment. 
Because as he is, so also we are in the world. Do you get that? As he is, as he is love, so we are also in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother, for if he does not love his brother whom he has seen, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You get it? Everyone. If you're a believer, you've been born of God, therefore God dwells in you, therefore the God of love dwells in you, and you do what? You love, especially who? Your brother, meaning those who are a part of the church. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Who do we love especially? The church. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You want to have assurance of your salvation? Do you love God? And out of a love for God, do you love one another? Your love for the saints, your love for the church. So I just want you to think, how is that love played out? How are you tangibly loving the church. If you're here today and you're just kind of like, I'm a little bit of, of a spectator at this moment. I feel like I'm on the bench. Let this text call you off the bench. Use our sports analogy. Hopefully we're all tracking on that. We're all to be on the field. We're all to be on the court. Whatever it is that you're playing, we're all in because God dwells in us. So don't, don't wait to be a part of a ministry to, to serve one another. As believers, we serve one another, whatever that looks like. However that looks here on a Sunday morning or outside of these walls. So that's assurance number one. And so the author is looking at the church and he says, guys, I know I gave you this really hard warning. Yet in your case, I do believe there's evidence of salvation. I see how you love one another. If you go to chapter 13, verses 1, 2, and 3, he'll actually talk about how they have loved one another. Number two, God's justice is a means of assurance. Look back at verse 10. Verse 10 begins by saying, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. So how is it that God's justice is a means of insurance, of assurance? Well, everything God does is for his glory, or in other words, for his name. Now, as unbelievers, and we could go through many, many texts, but we're not, um, the Bible is clear that there is nothing we do that pleases God as unbelievers. You go to Romans 8, read from verses 3 through 10, there is nothing that you do as an unbeliever that pleases God, that is done for his name, for his glory. Every thought and every action we have is an attack on his name. But as we just saw when we're saved, God now dwells in us. He begins to transform us and work in us so that, remember, as he is, so now we are in this world, so we would love like him. And so now our goal is to make much of the name of God, which is why we obey him, which is why we love one another, which is why we go make disciples. We don't make disciples just because we have to, but because we want to. 
Because there's joy in coming alongside of other people and helping them grow in their faith. There's joy in telling unbelievers about the gospel that they would believe in Jesus Christ. And so here's God's promise. He's just. And he sees every action that we do. And he promises that all who live for his name will be rewarded. Now, what we see in the book of Hebrews and what the church is experiencing and what some of you have experienced and certainly what many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world experience on a regular time is that as Christians, we might be disregarded. We might be overlooked. We might be persecuted. We might be hated in this world. There will be times, even in the church, that our actions will go largely unnoticed your acts of kindness, the fact that you write cards, the fact that you come early and help set up, the many, many, many things that you do that maybe only a few of us know, but the vast majority do not go, do not know. And you might sometimes wonder, is it worth it? You might sometimes be going, does it even matter? And yet we're told that God is just, meaning he sees every single action that we do. And he rewards it. In fact, I was reminded of this just last week. I was reading 1 Kings, last week, two weeks ago? Uh, 1 Kings 21. Hezekiah has been given, um, um, uh, Isaiah's come in and told Hezekiah, you're sick and you're going to die. Go ahead and prepare your house. You're not going to make it. So Hezekiah, right then, just prays to God. And he just says, God, save me, heal me. And before Isaiah leaves, God speaks to him and says, go back and tell Hezekiah, I heard his prayer, and I will add 15 years to his life. And just think about this part. Instantaneously, when Hezekiah prayed, God heard and answered and gave him 15 more years. God sees all people. He especially sees his church. He sees his believers, brothers, and sisters in the church, his children, and he takes every, and he takes notice of every action, of every word, and every thought that we have for the advancement of his church. Nothing you do goes unnoticed. Isn't that incredible? And God is just. So every, every letter that you write, every phone call that you make, coming up early and making coffee, whether anyone knows or not, or setting things up, God is just. And he sees that. And he promises to reward it. So God's character, his justice, is a means of assurance. In fact, we're going to read it, but I'm just going to reference. Read Matthew 25, I think starting in verse 31 to 46. And notice who he says will be blessed by God, those who serve the church. You'll read the words, the least of these. The least of these throughout the book of Matthew always refers to believers. Always in the book of Matthew, the words least of these. And so he will say, those who loved the least of these will be blessed by God and receive eternal life with him. But those who don't, they will experience judgment. So I encourage you to go read Matthew 25. It kind of fills um, it, um, there's evidence of God's character and his promise to be just to all those who love him and live for his name. Um, so this is now where your outline changes. I think I wrote uh, three, three effects. It's a tough one. Uh, so I'll say this. Let me say this. I, I could have kept the outline, but I didn't like it. Um, so if you listen to the online one, that's what they're hearing. Um, 
But uh, that's why it's always better to be in service. Uh, multiple reasons why. Um, so we're going to talk about two ways to experience the full assurance of our hope, two ways to grow in our assurance. But these are also the effects. It's very cyclical. I want you to understand that. Like as we're growing in our faith, the very things that we do to grow in our faith produces assurance. And the more assurance we have goes back and and encourages us to continue to live for God. Does that make sense? So it's cyclical. As, As we have assurance, we do more works. As we have more works that testify of our salvation, we have more assurance that then continues just to spur us on. So we could have gone at it either way, but I think this way is a little more faithful to the way the text is. Um, so two ways to experience the fullness, the full assurance of hope. Number one, persevere in love and service for the church. Look at verse 11. The author encourages the church to keep showing the same earnestness, that means diligence, zeal, that they would have full assurance of hope. In other words, he's saying, don't, don't slow down, keep loving the church. Now remember, not just love the church, but love the church out of the love for what? For the name of God. Our assurance is not meant to make us passive. There's some people who say, well, you know, if, we're, if, we, if we have assurance of our salvation, then we don't need to do anything. You will never find that type of language in the Bible. In fact, especially here in Hebrews, the author always directs the church Uh, to their present perseverance and faithfulness as a means of their assurance. Never just simply long ago when you made this decision. He always points to our present perseverance and faithfulness. That's why when you're in verse uh, 10, he says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. Do you notice those words? Those words are huge. He's saying you have lived this way and you're still living this way. He always directs our attention for the reason or the basis of our assurance on present faithfulness and obedience and perseverance. And we see that all throughout God's word. Like in 2 Peter chapter 1, this is what we read. He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Therefore, make, make your hope of assurance full. For if you practice these qualities, and earlier in the text, these qualities are faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. He says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, this is very similar to what we read here, here in Hebrews. Hebrews, he's saying, I don't want you to fall into apostasy and therefore continue to run the race. Continue to persevere in your love for God by loving the church. And so here he gives these qualities and he says, look, if you continue to live out your faith and virtue and knowledge and your brotherly affection and your love and your steadfastness and love, you won't fall. You will continue to have an assurance of your salvation and you will know that there will be a rich inheritance provided for you when Jesus Christ returns. Living a life of godliness produces assurance. So I want to encourage you, if you wrestle with assurance of our salvation, the author is telling you, press on more and more into the church. Live out your love for God by loving the church. 
And that can be by coming a part of table groups where that gives you like three or four or five other families where you're just particularly serving and you're in relationship with, you're practicing hospitality and service. That can be serving in different ways here in the church. There's many ways that that can look. Number two, the second way to experience the full assurance of our hope is to imitate godly saints who have gone before us. In verse 12, the author says, look, I I don't want you to be sluggish. Now, if you remember, back in chapter 5, verse 10 or verse 11, I forget which one, he says that they have become, oh, what is it? Now I'm blanking on the words. He says, you become dull of hearing in chapter 5, verse 11. Those words are sluggish in the ears. So the word lazy brackets this whole section. The reason the church is struggling is they've been lazy. And now he's warning them, look, I don't want you guys to be lazy. Everything in the middle is what's going to prevent us from being lazy. That's how this whole section works. And so he says, look, I don't want you to be lazy, but rather imitate godly saints who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so we we could ask, well, who are these godly saints? Well, starting in verse 13, he's going to start talking about Abraham. And when we get to chapter 11, he's going to talk a lot about about godly saints, men and women. In fact, all throughout the, the Bible, it's directing us to remember the saints who have gone before us. Paul in Philippians 3.17 says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who have walked according to the example you have in us. He's always directing, looking at those who have gone before us. One of the reasons we read our Bibles is to see examples of men and women who have persevered in their faith. It's one of the reasons we read God's Word. When we read about the life of Abraham, or the life of Ruth, or the life of Job, or the life of Jeremiah, we see what real faith looks like. We see how men and women have endured trials, have endured hostilities, have endured persecutions, and yet they continue to trust in God. We see how they trust God, trust in God more than they do in their present circumstances. Thinking of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thinking of Daniel and the lion's den. All of them trusted more in God than in the present reality of their situation. They said God is more beautiful, God is more wonderful, God is more glorious than this fiery furnace. Therefore, we will not profane the name of God. Daniel said, look, I would rather pray to God than be, pray to God and be thrown into the lion's den than not pray to God. And so regularly as we're going through God's word, we're seeing men and women who have lived out their faith. And as we see that, what we're learning is how to live out our faith as well. I would also encourage you, this is a great, um, this is a great reason why also we read Christian biographies. Christian biographies are good because sometimes we say, oh, well, that's that's because they were in the Bible, and God gave those people like special grace. Sometimes we, we think things like that. But then we read biographies, and we wait. The same grace God gave to those in the Old Testament and to those in the New Testament, he's giving to those who have lived throughout the last 2,000 years to still be faithful to God's name. So I want to encourage you, read, read biographies like John Patton, a missionary who goes to the New Hebrides and risks his life to share the gospel. Amazing, amazing biography. Corey Ten Boom, amazing biography. Martin Luther, I mean, we just go on and on on biographies. And what they do, they teach you and they show us in a very real way the faith and the grace that we see lived out in God's word is still lived out today, is still available today, and they instruct us on how we live today. 
Because oftentimes we think as Christians that we're, we're on a road that no one has ever walked before. Have you ever thought that? Whatever trial you're going in, no one, no one understands this. No one knows what I'm going through. When we come to God's word, when we come into biographies and autobiographies, they destroy that type of thinking. Because that is sinful thinking that wants, wants you to think that you're experiencing something that God has never brought on someone else. And it's too much for God's grace. And no one can actually understand what you're going through. But as we come and we look at men and women of faith, not only in God's word, but all throughout history, we see, oh, the road we're on is well-worn. And it instructs us in how we continue to live by faith today that God would be glorified and that we would inherit the promises. Um, Real faith is tangible faith. I pray that you know that. There is, there is great many, many people um, in this room who are demonstrating their love for God through their love for one another. You guys are a testimony of what it looks like to live and to love God. And so I want to encourage us, encourage us let us all be more zealous to run the race. Let us all be more zealous for our love for God to serve one another to love one another. Again, not to earn our salvation, but out of, the, out of God's grace, out of evidence of our salvation, and that we would encourage one another to continue to run the race. We patiently endure hardship because of the joy of being with Jesus. And what we see is that God has saved us so we would have assurance of our salvation so we keep running the race. So I'm going to pray. And then the men are going to come forward and we're going to take communion. And I want to encourage you, take this time and specifically, just praise God for the assurance that you have. If you're wrestling with assurance, confess that. Confess that and, and, and ask forgiveness if there's areas that you need to. Maybe you realize that you've not been trusting in God's character like his justice. Maybe you realize you've not been living out your faith, especially with the church. And so you're wrestling with assurance. And so I wanted to encourage you to confess that to him, that his spirit would then bring about grace and that you would be more involved in his church, that you would trust in his word and in his character. Father, we praise you this morning. We praise you for your goodness, for your grace, for your love, for your kindness, for your justice, that you promise to reward all those who live for your name. God, you are holy. And we know that everything you do is for the purpose of the advancement of your glory, for the advancement of your name. And so, Lord, I pray that for every believer here, that you would just give that assurance of salvation, that as we live for you, that as we trust in your character, we know that we will inherit the, inherit the promises, that we will dwell with you forever in the new heavens and new earth. God, we praise you for all that you've given us. We praise you for the salvation you have given us. Lord, may we continue to run the race of faith that we, we would praise you, that we would live for you, that others would know you, that we'd be a means of encouragement for the rest of the church. And Lord, I pray that if there are those here who do not yet know you, who realize they've not been living a life that produces fruit for the advancement of your name, for the good of others, Lord, I pray they'd come to repentance today, they'd confess that your son Jesus Christ is Lord, and they would experience forgiveness, and they would begin to experience the assurance that we have in faith in you today. In your name, Jesus, amen.